Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we are back with our first Oscar Rewind of the season. We'll be talking about the 1941 Oscars, also known as the 13th Academy Awards. We had every intention of covering it last year and then just the Oscar season took over. So I'm excited to discuss because it's known as the year where Citizen Kane lost Best Picture, right? How Green Was My Valley is the Best Picture winner and... I think that a lot of people consider this year to be one of those like great best picture losses. But I'm excited to talk about that. And maybe How Green Was My Valley isn't such a bad winner after all. We will get there for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think doing it now is great. It's the 80th anniversary of these Oscars. And kind of like this past year, we can kind of find some threads of like Coda, beating The Power of the Dog, but also there were 10 Best Picture nominees also. So we'll be talking about seven of them. We can briefly talk about the three that we're not talking about. I haven't seen any of these, so Mm -hmm. you can enlighten the listeners on why you spared me from these movies. Yes. So the three that we will not be discussing today are Blossoms in the Dust, Hold Back the Dawn, and One Foot in Heaven. One Foot in Heaven... It's simple, I think, why we're leaving this one out. It was only nominated for Best Picture, which is such a strange thing to think about, right? To just get that Best Picture Mm -hmm. nomination. But, you know, this is a really big year, I would say. So cutting this one off is very easy. Hold Back the Dawn. I think maybe we should have watched it. This is Olivia de Havilland. She's nominated here for Best Actress against her sister, Joan Fontaine, which is one of the greatest Hollywood rivalries ever. It was also nominated for Screenplay, Art Direction, Black and White, Cinematography, Black and White, and Score. I think the reason why we left it off, it's not a bad watch by any means, but it didn't win a single Oscar. And when we're looking at the other movies that we're watching, they either have greater reputations, um, so greater long-lasting legacies, or they won an Academy Award. The last one, Blossoms in the Dust, I Spared You, I Spared Myself. (laughs) I previously watched this this year for Kevin Jacobson's show and the runner-up is since I've been following along with that and watching all the movies as the episodes come out. And, oh, this is a doozy. It won an Oscar, actually, Art Direction Color, and it received nominations for Best Actress for Greer Garson and Cinematography Color. This is what I will call Greer Garson in The Blind Side. She is gorgeous in technicolor she looks great but she's playing a woman in texas and she's about as british as they come it's a very dull film and i know exactly what you would think of it and again like it's Mm -hmm. only win was art direction color greer garson of course goes on to win best actress the following year at the oscars so this one is sort of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things we can get into the best actress debacle and that fight what happened because when I read about these Oscars, mm-hmm. I had no idea they were sisters. So to see the drama that was happening, them two went to the Oscars, but Barbara Stanwyck didn't even go at first. She was like, I'm not going to win. And they like convinced her to come and she made it partway through the ceremony. To think of that as insane too, like people just came as they pleased. I know. I read that too. <laughs> like Betty Davis skipped it. Greer skipped it because she was in Canada. Joan Fontaine didn't want to go. 
Barbara Stanwyck was dragged there. What? <laughs> it's just so funny to think about how, like, all five of your best actress nominees have some sort of excuse or reason why they don't want to be there at all. Yeah. <laughs> and then when Joan won and she got back to her seat, Olivia, like, gave her the faintest of smiles and a handshake. She shook her sister's hand. That's at insane. Yeah. Oscar. It's crazy. And it's funny, too, because suspicion wasn't supposed to come out that year it was supposed to be pushed to later in january and they released it on the very last day of eligibility so olivia also she later went on to say like if only they would have released it later maybe i could have won but if we're comparing joan fontaine and olivia de havilland i definitely prefer Olivia de Havilland. Her win in the heiress, I think, is maybe the strongest of the decade. It's definitely up there. Joan Fontaine in Suspicion, though, not so much. These nominees that we'll discuss, we are going to go through them in order of the number of nominations that they received, so lowest all the way up to highest, ending with our Best Picture winner, How Green Was My Valley. So Suspicion... Description here, a shy young heiress marries a charming gentleman and soon begins to suspect he is planning to murder her. This was directed by the great Alfred Hitchcock and it stars Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine. It was nominated for Best Picture and Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture for Franz Waxman. And of course, like we mentioned, Joan Fontaine won Best Actress. She was nominated the previous year for Rebecca, which... I think is a far superior film and performance from Fontaine, but she manages to win here. I think just generally, how does this compare to other Hitchcock films for you? Had you seen this before? What did you think? This was a first time watch for me, and it felt like such a different kind of Hitchcock. And it's not even early Hitchcock. He's been directing for 10, 20 years, and I found it to be a little ill-paced, he uses a lot of his techniques and like cut to for emphasis on like certain objects and like that is very him but I felt overall it seemed like one a pretty sexist story two the ending was just like happened in under a minute and you assumed a flip was coming but it was summed up way too quickly and I just found it really dull and I don't know if that was because I had trouble seeing Cary Grant as this playboy who was like leeching off of her. That was hard to see because he's like one of Hollywood's hit men. So I don't know. It just didn't come together for me. It was like really hard for me to focus through this entire story, which I don't really say about Hitchcock movies. So I don't know. How do you feel about it? One of my favorite Hitchcock films is Rebecca, which we discussed on our Hitchcock episode and that had just one best picture. The way that the story unfolds is masterful. The tone, it's just so brilliant. I love that film. And here, I think you can see traces of that Hitchcock here. I love how it opens and it's dark and you're coming out of this tunnel. I think that a lot of this film could be interpreted as a commentary on the female gaze. I love when Hitchcock works with women that way. I think the thing that you said about Cary Grant is interesting because I always wonder with this film if he was miscast. There's certainly part of you that is always 
doubting that he could be a murderer, which I think works for the film, right? You wouldn't suspect Cary Grant to be this devious murderer. It just doesn't fit with what you know about Cary Grant. But I read that this choice to cast Cary Grant really ruined everything with this movie because RKO wasn't willing to commit and tell the story in the way that Hitchcock wanted because they were so concerned with Cary Grant's heroic image. The novel that this is based on ends differently. And Hitchcock wanted an ending that was similar, but the studio insisted that they had to change it because of Cary Grant. And in an interview later on, Hitchcock said, and I'm going to quote this because it kind of blew my mind. He says, in the case of Suspicion, one of the early films you mentioned with Cary Grant, he should never have been in the picture in the first place. You run into this problem. You cast a man who's suspected of murder, and then you have to compromise. I remember the head of RKO returned from New York and said with a big grin on his face, oh, you should see what's been done to your film Suspicion. I said, what? He said, wait and see. It was now only 55 minutes long. They had gone through the film in my absence and taken out every scene that indicated the possibility that Cary Grant was a murderer. So there was no film existing at all. That was ridiculous. Nevertheless, I had to compromise on the end. What I wanted to do was that the wife was aware that she was going to be murdered by her husband. So she wrote a letter to her mother saying that she was very much in love with him. She didn't want to live anymore. She was going to be killed, but society should be protected. She therefore brings up this fatal glass of milk, drinks it, and before she does, she says, will you mail this letter to mother? Then she drinks the milk and dies. You then have just one final scene of a cheerful Cary Grant going to the mailbox and posting the letter, but this was never permitted because of the basic error in casting. Oh my god. What could have been? that ending, I can believe. Yes. Yeah. That feels Hitchcock- That's horrifying. Right, because that is like all of those warnings about marrying someone you don't know or like someone who just appears in all these places like Cary Grant does in the film. And I think that Hitchcock that we know and love, you can see that with the way that he blocks these actors, the way that you never really see Cary Grant walking into a frame. He's always just there. It's so spooky in that way. And it, Mm -hmm. it starts to work like... Hitchcock films usually do, but the ending really destroys it. I agree. Okay, well, all of my feelings are valid then. That makes 100% (laughs) Mm -hmm. total sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's the better movie. Oh my god, of course. And originally, it was supposed to be a B movie before Hitchcock was on board. It was supposed to be a B movie with George Sanders, who we know from All About Eve, who would Mm -hmm. also be perfect in this part, because he's not like the showman Cary Grant like beautiful handsome man who we love yeah he's someone who you're a little suspicious of but you could see a woman falling for and Anne Shirley who's in Stella Dallas a 1937 film with Barbara Stanwyck I almost think this works better than what we ended up getting because then they probably wouldn't have been afraid for that ending as much because George Sanders is a much more believable murderer in the eyes of a studio And I guess getting into the Joan Fontaine of it, how do you feel about her performance, her winning here? Could this have been played by a different actress? I mean, I think this could be played by anyone with a pulse based on how she's playing this part. (laughs) (laughs) Like, am I mad because my two favorite actresses from the period are nominated against her? 
Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis, maybe. It's not that I don't like Joan Fontaine. I think she gives an excellent performance in Rebecca, but this is one of my least favorite wins in the category. It was just so boring to watch her have this same one note, worried, like constipated face the whole time. And it was in every scene. And then her character who always comes back to this man. It's like, have you not learned the past five issues that he's caused you and you're still going to say you love him? Like, you know, this milk is laced with poison and you don't drink it. That's smart of you, but you're going to stay there. I'd have a hard time rejecting Cary Grant. So that's not the bigger (laughs) issue I have with it. I get why that is hard to accept. (laughs) I think it's a problem with how the character's written and then also in how she plays it. Yeah, my my bigger issues are with the performance because there's just, yeah, like I said, there's nothing there. I have a hard time, I think, talking about it and trying to find its merits because regardless of the competition, this is just not a win-worthy performance to me. She's not giving us anything that makes you think like, wow, this woman, she's doing such an amazing job bringing this character to life. It's a really odd win. And I do love her and Rebecca. Yeah, I think this coming right after that is also like, Mm -hmm. okay, she didn't win then. She definitely shouldn't win now. And with the competition, yeah, I totally agree. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I don't think well. Because today, this type of movie would probably be something that was just dumped on Netflix. And I think if you do have major stars in it, it would be considered. Possibly it could get in with the 10 best picture slots. It sort of feels like this year they're really stretching with some of these nominees to fill those slots. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I don't think today's Academy would respond positively to this. I don't think they respond at all. Yeah. We've talked about horror at the Oscars, and this is as close to that as you can get. Either way, the picture is made with Hitchcock's blessing or edited by the studio. Mm-hmm. Neither one gets recognized at the Oscars. I think this would totally get flushed out. And I think I know what you're going to say here, but were there any snubs? It's even surprising score got in here, but no, no, no snubs. <laughs> Do you think there were? I think this is good. (laughs) I prefer to remember the other Hitchcock films. Yeah. If you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I'm going to give it art direction, interior, black and white. (laughs) I do think the interiors in the movie are quite beautiful. And I think that the way that Hitchcock uses the set design and the art decoration, Mm -hmm. I love how he does that in all of his movies. And this one is no exception. So I would say that. I'll go with cinematography, despite it being hard to follow at times, or just interesting, I guess. I did find some of the shots really interesting. Like you mentioned in the intro, Mm -hmm. there was sound, but it was dark. I was like, what's happening? And then like after five plus seconds, we finally see an image. So that was unique. And there are some other shots, like some 360 degree shots that happen and the angles that he shoots from. So I found that intriguing. I remember the first time I watched Suspicion thinking that something was wrong with my TV yeah. in the opening. I was like, is this picture not <laughs> going? Like, what's going on here? What's happening? I can only hear it. So I do, I really do love that opening. And I also have always interpreted it at, as like a very sexual intro. There's a tunnel, the train, you have a lot of 
I don't know, imagery that makes you think about this as more of a psychosexual thriller. It doesn't necessarily, doesn't really turn into that as much as I would like Mm -hmm. it to, but you can see Hitchcock and what he's interested in there for sure. Okay, next up, we'll be talking about The Maltese Falcon. Description here, San Francisco private detective Sam Spade takes on a case that involves him with three eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette with the stakes rising after his partner is murdered. This was directed by John Huston and stars Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Gladys George, and Sidney Greenstreet. It was nominated at the Oscars for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Greenstreet, and Adapted Screenplay for Houston. Not enough. I mean, we'll cover the snubs, but like, come on, three and these three, that's it? That's insane. Oh, God. Hate to see it. This movie, I think why we have to include it even though it didn't win anything is because it has such a strong legacy it's number 31 on afi's top 100 it absolutely deserves to be there in my opinion this is a classic that is very fun to watch going from suspicion to this is like a total flip like i was so into this movie for every second of it so yeah i i love this the question came from the futurist Though the Maltese Falcon was made twice before, would you agree that this third version has one of the tightest scripts in film history and that it became the template for future private eye films and was film noir before film noir was in style? Yes. So I think the first thing there, the script, this script is a lean, mean script. Every single thing that's there is necessary. It is important. It is perfectly written and it's a huge deal too because john houston this is his first feature wild which is Mm -hmm. insane and he's adapting a dashiell hammett book and he said during the production of this movie how important dashiell hammett's words were to him and he needed to make sure he got that right and again like no fat moves right along You were on every word. I also think the thing that Houston knew when he made this film was that he didn't want it to be plot driven. He wanted it to be character driven. And these characters and the way that he writes them, that's what stands out to me. It's not how the plot is moving forward. It's the character of Sam Spade. So I think if we're thinking too about the other part of the question about film noir Film noir was always waiting, I think, for someone to grab it, right? It's in these Dashiell Hammett novels. It's in Raymond Chandler's novels. It's all right there, but no one had really taken that yet. And I think part of the reason why it works so well is because of Houston's development of the Sam Spade character and, of course, Humphrey Bogart's performance as Sam Spade. I feel like that's at the stage also, not just for film noir to come, as rooting for this guy who is completely emotionless. Like, when he finds out his partner dies, he does not react at all. He is having an affair with his partner's wife. Like, all of these things that are happening, he doesn't react emotionally to anything. But you still find yourself rooting for him. And that's something, like, I feel like without that, not only do you not have film noir, you don't have gangster films, you don't have anti-heroes in television like we have today i really think like this film is so influential because it starts all of that yeah i guess the first thing there were three versions of this movie made within a decade which is crazy and 
the first two were major flops. They both had issues in production, in writing, in adapting the novel. I think that was the hardest part. Because even in this version, there are things that are omitted, but it definitely works. They didn't even think Humphrey Bogart should play Sam Spade at first. So I think that decision really worked in the end. And to the script, like if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss a big chunk of the story, anything related to the characters. And that's what I love. Like It's like Aaron Sorkin at his best. Oh, God. But less of like the comedy and the fluff, but more of just like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like Gilmore Girls, but thriller. You heard it here first. The Maltese Falcon is Gilmore Girls, but thriller. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And that's what really works. It keeps the energy up. It's so fast paced. And that's how movies like this should be, especially film noir, which I think can also succeed in those like slow moving sensual moments but I think here especially it really works yeah and I think if we're thinking about the other two adaptations the first was the Maltese Falcon from 1931 and then Satan Met a Lady which is a fantastic title from 1936 I haven't seen either of those but from what I read about Houston not only did he know that Hammett's book was far more focused on character and that he needed to really make sure that Sam Spade was right. It's really cool, I think, that for his first feature, he fought the studio when the studio wanted to make this character not quite as harsh or mean. I mean, part of it, like, Sam Spade is a cold guy, and Houston knew that if you did anything to that, it's like, what's the point of remaking this again? We're not having a happy ending. We're not having this character who you want the audience to root for or who has stronger morals. He's like, that's that's not the point of this. If we're going to remake it, it needs mm-hmm. to be this way. So I like that he had that gumption and went for it because otherwise I don't think this film influences film noir in the way that it does. Mm-hmm. And film noir is a look too. I mean, I just, I love the shadows in this film. I love the fonts that are used. That's probably a strange thing to say. But when you see like the shadow of Sam Spade in writing on the floor, Mm -hmm. love that. Yeah. After his partner dies and he's like, take the name off, put my name up. It's kind of like he's been waiting for that moment. And to emphasize that with a pan to the shadow of his name coming through the window, because we see it in reverse behind him. I think that is astonishing. It's so cool. Again, great. Great lighting, great cinematography here. Mm-hmm. And influenced by Greg Tolan's work in Citizen Kane. Also amazing work. I'm like thinking of those two simultaneously mm-hmm. as I'm like thinking about shadows and yeah. blocking. and Not to step on what we'll talk about later at the end with, you know, what won Best Picture and Legacy and everything like that. But it's hard to imagine now that people talk about this year as just how green was my valley versus Citizen Kane. When this movie, to me, is definitely like, this is my choice. If I'm rewatching any of the movies, I would pick this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has an incredible legacy, and it should. But if we're thinking of like the Oscars, what's going to win? Mm-hmm. And the Academy was just so different back then. Box office was so different. So it's hard to really put ourselves in that place. But being a directorial debut from who will become an incredible, memorable director... I feel like 
you know, they'll be like, oh, it's this great, but it's his first movie. Like, what if he flops the next one? Ugh. And then also you have these other Best Picture nominees that are about the war and about heroism. Mm-hmm. And this is like a very dark film noir movie. And that isn't going to be their first choice for a Best Picture winner. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I get it. I'm really happy it's there for Best Picture. But yeah, I agree it needed more. But also in that same way, like maybe it fares better historically because it didn't do so well. I think that's definitely the case here where you're thinking, like, if we think much more about its influence, the Oscars happen the year that the film comes out. They rarely Mm -hmm. are able to see a movie for what it will become in the moment. And this is definitely a case where they weren't able to see that. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? It's so hard because it's the creation of a genre. I think today's Academy would see it as too much of a genre film, unfortunately. I think we could maybe get a performance nominated, maybe cinematography. Yeah, I don't know if it's personal preference, but I feel like they would more than three. I guess getting into snubs, I would love to see a director nomination here. Also cinematography, black and white. Art direction, black and white. Do you have any others? I agree with you about director. I'm going to quote the great Bosley Crowther here from the New York Times, (laughs) who I always look to for reviews from this time period. But he said, John Huston's direction of his own screenplay is as brilliant as any of the jewels which are alleged to encrust the Falcon, whose possession is the crux of the story. And that's a beautiful Hmm. quote, and I completely Mm -hmm. agree. I mean, I would also give Humphrey Bogart a nomination. I love him as Sam Spade here. And I feel like without this performance and the success of this film, he doesn't go on to get Casablanca or Treasure of the Sierra Madre, those big films that we know him from. And I feel like he absolutely deserved a nomination. Mm -hmm. Give this movie more. It deserves all of the nominations. Well, it's surprising that Mary Astor won Best Acting at NBR, and she wasn't nominated either. Yes, because she was nominated for another film that year and won, which is always strange when that happens. That rule doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you can't be nominated twice in the same category for different movies. So she won for The Great Lie, but I would have nominated her for this one. Mm-hmm. I also think we should talk about Sidney Greenstreet. This was his first film role, and he ended up getting a nomination, which I think is also completely deserved. Yeah, both of these characters are so conniving, and especially Mary, who, my God, every line she says is a lie, but you're thinking, is this truth or is this false? Mm -hmm. And I think figuring that out is part of the fun of the movie. And then Sidney is Casper Gutman. Yeah, he's also great. I think him and... Peter Lore, who plays Joel Cairo, are like just a great duo, and they're so slimy. Well, they're also in Casablanca together as well. Joel Cairo, oh. another perfect character, perfect character name, and mm-hmm. I feel like that typically happens in detective stories or in film noir. You can look at the characters' names and know exactly what type of person they are or some of their physical qualities based on their name itself, so... Absolutely love that as well. Yeah, Green Street and Peter Laurie, like Casablanca is the big one, but I know they even made more films together after this one. 
but this was the first time that they were together on screen. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would almost give it direction, but I'm going to stick with adapted screenplay for Houston. I think he deserves the award, and especially in this work that had been adapted before, but incorrectly. The pacing is phenomenal and was probably my favorite part, just like waiting on the next word every single minute. What about you? What would you give it? I completely agree. Adapted screenplay. This is one of the greatest adaptations that we have. It creates an entire genre. It proves that the right director, the right screenwriter can take a novel and they can make it better on film, but they can also honor the source text. And I'm going to read my favorite quote from the movie, which is, I'm sure, a lot of people's favorite quotes, but it is, I hope they don't hang you precious by that sweet neck. The chances are you'll get off with life. That means if you're a good girl, you'll be out in 20 years. I'll be waiting for you. If they hang you, I'll always remember you. <laughs> that ending is throws you for a loop, but it's just the perfect noir ending. Mm-hmm going through these movies it's really jumping around here with things that we like things we don't like our next movie is here comes mr jordan description here boxer joe pendleton dies 50 years too soon due to a heavenly mistake and is given a new life as a millionaire playboy this was directed by alexander hall and stars robert montgomery claude rains james gleason and evelyn keys it won two oscars best screenplay and best story and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Montgomery, Best Supporting Actor for Gleason, Best Director, and Best Cinematography, Black and White. What did you think of Here Comes Mr. Jordan? Here Comes Mr. Jordan, or take a shot every time they say, I'm in the pink. Don't do that, you guys. Don't play that drinking game. You will be in the hospital. <laughs> oh, boy. This was this hurt to watch. I just, I don't know why this is a Best Picture nominee. Like, it's kind of cute. I get it, but pretty unmemorable. This aligns because it really gave me You Can't Take It With You vibes. And I also did not fare well with that movie. <laughs> oh, I forgot. That was a really hard one for you. I think that the opening of this movie is absolutely hilarious. I, one, the name of this movie is so funny. I kept trying to figure out why this title. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is so funny. I had never seen this before until this watch. And I immediately, like, as it went on and I started to see what was happening, I because I really didn't know much about this movie beforehand. I didn't watch a trailer. I didn't read anything. I was like, oh, this is Heaven Can Wait. And I actually really like Heaven Can Wait. I love Warren Beatty. I love Julie Christie. I think you would probably find it too saccharine, if I have to say. Maybe you would like it, though, but it's from 1978. But it's the exact same premise, just football instead of boxing. And the football player, played by Warren Beatty, has to get back into his body because he's in the Super Bowl. And I do enjoy that, but the big difference is that Elaine May worked on that script. So the comedy is pretty strong. Okay. I think it works better tonally than this one which feels just so much of a place with a lot of like faith oriented films that came out then about like thinking a lot about your life and what it means i mean it's a wonderful mm -hmm. life comes out a couple years later so i feel like films like this were very popular then but i would suggest instead heaven can wait okay maybe i'll still give it a try 
it's very easygoing. Like, I guess there's nothing like bad about the movie. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't amount to that much. And if we're talking about the Oscars, it's just not a movie that I would put up there. No. Like, we can skip ahead to how today's Academy would receive this movie. I don't think this gets any nominations either. Well... And it's crazy that it had seven. Okay, but I'm going to tell you that Heaven Can Wait in 1978 (laughs) had nine nominations. (laughs) (laughs) What did it win for? It won Art Direction. Oh, that is. But it was nominated for Picture, Director, Actor... Supporting actor and actress, screenplay, cinematography, and score. Or on top of art direction. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I actually think today's Academy would eat this up. They do love a sweet story at the end of the day. And if we're thinking about this period in time, the U.S. is on the precipice of entering World War II. Sometimes they just want something that makes them feel good about their lives and makes them smile and makes them feel a little bit better at the end of the day. And not something dark, like the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) So, I don't know. I feel like today's Academy, if it were made by the right director, I think they could probably like it. I mean, I guess so, because they proved that right with the Beatty version. Yeah. I can see Bradley Cooper making this. (laughs) (laughs) I think he wants to be Warren Beatty a little bit. That would work. I wonder what sport they would use in that version, because we have boxing here... Football in heaven can wait. What's Bradley's favorite sport? Well, he's a noted Philadelphia Eagles fan, so I would say football. But I guess, you know, he is always at the U.S. Open, so maybe tennis. could see that. But, like, does tennis really bring people, I guess. I mean, we just had King Richard, so never mind. (laughs) But I was going to say, does tennis really bring people to the movies? I guess basketball or baseball would be the clear options. Those are the Mm -hmm. other most popular sports so probably baseball make it just lean into the americana sounds terrible (laughs) but would i see it yes (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you think there were any snubs for this movie i do not in fact i find it kind of egregious that this one over the maltese falcon in screenplay don't ask me about it i I have no (laughs) idea i thought it was also funny that robert montgomery also played in Another 1941 movie, another Hitchcock movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is sadly not related to (laughs) our favorite favorite Mr. and Mrs. Smith, (laughs) but I am interested in seeing that. Yeah, Robert Montgomery, I know Robert Montgomery because he's Elizabeth Montgomery's dad, and Elizabeth Montgomery is, of course, in Bewitched, and I used to watch Bewitched on Nick and Knight growing up, so I love Elizabeth Montgomery. (laughs) Anyway, all that aside. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I think I would give Best Actor to Robert Montgomery. I feel like he was the best part of the movie for me. I know I'm like very hesitant on that one. Okay. But (laughs) I don't know. I really don't know. I'm kind of at a loss. I don't really know either. You know, I'll give it Best Story, which doesn't exist anymore. They stopped giving this award out in 1956, but basically the story is everything that you get with plot and characters, but it usually lacks most of the dialogue. And then a screenwriter comes in and they turn it into the screenplay. So that's what best story is. I think I would give it best story just because it goes on to influence 
Heaven Can Wait. And I know it is also an adaptation, but I feel like its influence is strong. So, or at least somewhat Mm -hmm. with films that come later. So I will give it that one. Great. Let's give it an award that's outdated. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, not me. (laughs) Oops. Okay. Our next movie is The Little Foxes. Description here, the ruthless, moneyed Hubbard clan lives in and poisons their part of the Deep South at the turn of the 20th century. It's directed by one of our favorites, William Wyler. Stars also one of our favorites, Betty Davis, Teresa Wright, and Herbert Marshall. This was nominated for nine Oscars for picture, director, actress for Davis, supporting actress for Patricia Collins, and then also for Wright. And then screenplay, art direction, black and white, editing, and music scoring of a dramatic picture. I think you hinted at this before that you'd seen this and you loved Betty, but what else do you like about the movie or not like? I love The Little Foxes. I think it's very underrated, Weiler. I think that if you watch Succession today, you have to thank William Weiler and everyone who worked on The Little Foxes because... Yes, Succession is very Shakespearean, but also I think that in a similar way to Succession, so I'm talking about Succession a lot just in case people haven't seen this movie and you need a reason to watch it. I love this movie because I love like the Southern Gothic, like dark elements to it, but I also love this Betty Davis character. Regina is such an evil character. She also has to deal with a lot of these men who get a lot of advantages that she doesn't get just because she's a woman living in the South during this period. And I think Davis brings a lot of nuance to the role. She is just so wicked in it. I absolutely love her on every staircase that she's on in the movie. I think that she really is the movie to me, but also, I mean, Weiler's direction here as well. I think it shows that he understands women and their power more than any other director working at the time. Like, even though, yes, George Cukor made a lot of women's pictures, I think Weiler understood their power in a very different way. And I think that this film definitely does that in a way that Things like Mrs. Miniver and The Best Years of Our Lives touch on, but they don't get into the darkness like Betty Davis can. And I feel like Weiler saw that potential in Davis, and he knew that he had a leading lady who could carry this type of role for him. I think I like it, too. It's just a very me movie. Like It makes sense that I would like it based on other films that I like about women who take charge and who are very complicated. Um, I didn't love it as much as you. This is not a me movie. No, it's not. But again, DP Greg Toland, he's very busy this year. I did like that. I think Weiler, on our episode and afterwards, we talked a lot about how his movies are so detailed and he uses a lot of extras and these shots and sets are like very majestic. And we definitely get that here. I love the shot of the placard in the beginning with Horace's name on it because that kind of sets up this whole thing for Betty Davis's character kind of in wanting to take over and the family struggles, the dilemma that goes on. Mm -hmm. I didn't love Teresa right here. We joke about her a lot. (laughs) Sometimes she doesn't give you what you want necessarily. It just comes off as too whiny 
just feels like too much of the same thing for most of the movie. She's really acting as Regina's pawn and doesn't yield to her power until the very end. But in that same way, I think Betty Davis is incredible. If we want to compare this to Joan and Suspicion, it's like a whole nother world. There's so much nuance, her emotions, you can see her thinking, and there's so much more character development. And seeing her rise above her brothers and outsmart them is just really fun to watch. Yeah, I also think that The Little Foxes is such a fantastic commentary on the United States at the time, because ultimately it's an indictment of the country, of its values of capitalism. And you can see, I think, you know, how powerful people retain their power. So like you saying like the Teresa Wright is whiny and like Regina has this power over her. Like that's definitely, I think, what Weiler is going for with his ensemble. I think that what works about it too is that you can see clearly like there is a stark contrast between good and evil in the movie. Like that's pretty easy to see. And But I think because... Weiler is directing it and he has this incredible cast everything is just heightened and I think it feels like so much darker than you think when it starts out because at the beginning talked about Weiler being in the details they're describing everything with these bonds and there's a lot to learn I think about the social order and what's going on in the plot to really understand the stakes later on. But yeah, I think this film is just, it's kind of evil. And it's a great commentary in the same way that Succession is. And that's something that I really like about it and why I would recommend it to people. I think that Greg Toland's cinematography is beautiful. Speaking of Greg Toland, makes us think of Wells, who we will talk about in a minute with Citizen Kane. But I think a perfect double feature with The Little Foxes is actually The Magnificent Ambersons, which is Wells' next film after Citizen Kane. It has, it's just a very rich film. It's all about this moral corruption and all about wealth. And I would definitely pair the two of those. And how does this movie compare to other Weiler movies? Either ones we've talked about or even ones we haven't. For Weiler, I would say of the ones we've talked about, this is my second favorite after The Best Years of Our Lives. I prefer it to Ben-Hur and Mrs. Miniver and Detective Story. But I think compared to the other ones, I still probably like The Heiress more. And I love Roman Holiday. But it's, I would say, top tier Weiler for me. Did you see his other Betty Davis movie, The Letter? I have seen The Letter. The Letter is a melodrama that I would definitely recommend. But I prefer The Little Foxes and her performance in The Little Foxes to The Letter. I mean, I haven't seen as many Weilers as you have, so it's more lower tier for me, but it's definitely above Detective Story. The ones we've talked about, The Best Years of Our Lives, Ben-Hur, Mrs. Miniver, I think those three are my like top three of his. But I think on rewatch, this would fare better. There's a lot to untangle, and Weiler works in subtleties, so I'm not sure I got everything that he was trying to portray on my first watch. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more different than Mrs. Miniver, which comes out the following year. I just imagined, like, if he had flipped Greer Garson and Betty Davis. I don't think either of them could play the other part. (laughs) How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would still enjoy it. I think nomination-wise, it's 
I mean, now it's kind of high to have a nine nomination movie, but I think it would still do really well. The female performances are there. The political commentary, it's intriguing. There's lots of drama going on. That conversation between Horace and Regina at the end just really makes you think. And I like how cerebral that became. I think today's Academy would receive this movie similarly, actually. I think it could get quite a few nominations. I think it's very relevant. I feel like audiences are still hungry for this type of story. I mean, again, look at how Succession performs at the Emmys. Here we just have the Shiv character in the lead role, but we even have a cousin Greg. So I do feel like (laughs) this movie would do close to the same nominations wise. Do you think there were any snubs? Yes, because it is crazy that this movie was nominated for nine Oscars and didn't win one. A full shutout, which I hate to see. My favorite movies always almost get like nearly shut out or shut out at the Oscars. (laughs) So it's something I should just expect if I like a movie. But hence like The Power of the Dog and The Irishman. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it should have won at least one. And I would include cinematography. I think it's a beautifully shot film. Yeah, Yeah, I would have said cinematography. But it has all the big ones, so I'm happy with everything else. Even getting three actress nominations, Mm -hmm. supporting or lead, I think that's not something that ever happens. Yeah. Have you ever seen Come to the Stable about the nuns? Do you think I've seen that? No. (laughs) I I shouldn't have asked. I should have just told you. Um, That had three nominations in the same categories, and these nominations are certainly better. (laughs) And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It's for Betty Davis. She kept my attention. Out of all the actresses we've talked about, the performances, she is my favorite so far from this movie, from the other three movies we've talked about, too. I would give it to Betty Davis, too. I love her in this movie. I think it's one of her best performances in her career. And I feel I just I love everything that she's doing. She is so devious and wicked in it. And I I just love her. I think she's fantastic. And up there, I think, for my like women in Weiler performances, I should make a list and rank them. But mm-hmm. she's definitely up there. Okay, it's time for the big one, Citizen Kane. I feel like we don't even need to give a description here, any of this, but just in case. Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. It was directed by Orson Welles. It also stars Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton, Dorothy Comingor, and Agnes Moorhead. It won original screenplay and was nominated for eight other Oscars, including picture, director, actor for Wells, cinematography, black and white, art direction, black and white, sound recording, film editing, and music scoring of a dramatic picture. This movie is number one on AFI's top 100 list. And I know a couple weeks ago, Ryan McQuaid asked us if The Godfather should be number one on this list instead. And I said it should. But I have to tell you, after my rewatch, I'm going back on my word. And (laughs) I firmly believe that Citizen Kane deserves its number one spot. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect movie. It's daring. It's insane that it got made. And it influenced everything else that came later. I think I kept Citizen Kane at one. And it is staying there. It is officially a five-star movie for me. What took you so long? 
it was at four and a half. Okay. It's not like it was far away. Okay. okay. But I think just, and this is my awful thing that Orson Welles would kill me for, but watching the majority of it on my phone due to time constraints still made me appreciate it so much. You watched this on your phone? Was it, were you on the train? <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm not sitting it. at home on my phone. I was going to say, I was this. like, wait, I just, I need a visual. <laughs> Um, You're just sitting on the L watching Citizen Kane. Yeah, the L that doesn't work anymore. So yeah, I was like, I need something to pass the time. It's just a phenomenal movie. My God. From the opening shot that cranes up to Xanadu to the montages to the story and getting to know him and how it's framed. And oh, my God, I have the most notes on this out of any of the seven movies we're talking about today. The script is phenomenal. Like, even though it only won one award, I'm glad it was that. We can also talk about the drama of Orson Welles and why this movie probably did so poorly at the Oscars was because of that. But I totally agree. I love this movie. There's like social political commentaries throughout. And it just, I kept thinking about Mank the entire time. Oh my God. I think that the thing about Citizen Kane is that you do get, and we talked about this with The Godfather, this rise and fall story, but you get it in one film. I think when you're thinking of the legacy of a movie like Citizen Kane, I remember the first time I was assigned to watch this movie. I I didn't watch it until college. And I remember just thinking like, okay, it's time to watch Citizen Kane. Am I going to like it as much as everyone says? When you hear that something is the greatest movie of all time or the most influential movie of all time. You think, how could it be? But when you experience this, it is just such a rich, all-encompassing experience because it is still somehow as relevant today as it was then. It's all about the media and who controls the media. And it's just this grand American story that I feel like even at the time, directors like William Wyler, he said he learned something when he saw Citizen Kane. And it was made by a brand new filmmaker. And he has how many films under his belt at this point? It's a film that challenges viewers still today. It challenged the industry at the time. People wanted to burn the film. Like the Louis B. Mayer wanted to burn this movie. And thankfully, RKO stopped that from happening and people got to see it. But it's really one of those like against all odds stories that I love. Well, William Hurst paid to have the negative burned. Yeah. And they didn't do it. That's insane. Imagine like a 25 year old being like, I'm going to take him on like richest, most powerful newspaper man in the country. I feel like this is a movie we could break down scene by scene Mm -hmm. and not have talked about it enough. So it's hard to discuss it, not just in this grandiose way but it's something i would rewatch tomorrow and i watched it last week there's something so inviting to it even though it is kind of a very dark movie at times yeah i think one the way that it opens we have one of the greatest openings in film history the way that the camera moves what it's capturing this overlapping sound design you see xanadu and you think about what it can symbolize that snow globe breaking rosebud, which is such a famous line, but not knowing what that means at the beginning. I don't consider this movie to be like a depressing 
story. Like I will watch it at any time, but it does sort of feel like mm-hmm. you're watching a funeral of sorts as you're learning about this man and you know the end that's coming. There's this like beautiful nostalgia to it too. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all encompassing. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from the movie is when he's talking to Bernstein and Kane says, I always gagged on that silver spoon. If I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a really great man. And Bernstein goes, what would you like to have been? And he says, everything you hate. But as this tycoon, it just it totally fits. He owns this newspaper company and one of the richest men in the world. Sponsor of democracy. They equate him to Kubla Khan. I also just think visually this movie pulls you in and doesn't really let go. That's why it's so watchable. You have that cinematography from Greg Toland, the deep focus shots, which basically start in this movie. Like this is such an influential work of art. You get so many wide angle shots, low angle shots. And Mm -hmm. not only do those types of shots capture the beauty of the interiors we're in, they tell a greater story symbolically. You can see the collaboration between the DP and the director working at a hundred. And I think just technically we keep throwing around like masterpiece, greatest movie ever made all of that, but it is so technically brilliant. Like everything is Mm -hmm. perfect. The sound, the score, the cinematography, art direction, everything technically perfect. Yeah. Just thinking about some of the techniques and, and some of the effects I hadn't even noticed before. Mm Mm-hmm. Like there's a photo of the Chronicle writers and that changes into the actual men sitting taking that photo. So the transitions in this movie are just astounding and it is a technical feat. I love the way that Tolan works, how he features Wells and Kane as this giant by using a lot of low angles, high angles, shows how menacing he is. And like that shot towards the end where they're just zooming out and out in Xanadu of those like thousands of boxes and things that he's bought that don't mean anything. It's yeah. Right. And it all of course goes to a symbol much like the snow globe from childhood, right? Of this, a certain type of life that he craves something that's simpler. And I think people with this movie also talk about, yes, like how Mayer and Hearst wanted to burn the film and no one wanted to show it how no one wanted to see it. And I really love how you can see here in a way that, you know, Hitchcock didn't get this opportunity with RKO for suspicion. But here you really see the power of Wells's creative control and how important that is when a director can have that sort of creative control over their project. Absolutely. It's just so ahead of its time. Like the, the filmmaking for that time is so experimental that I think you can take it for granted today because everyone tries to do what Wells is doing at Citizen Kane, but he really was the first one to, to do it. Mm-hmm. So we love this movie. We think it holds up incredibly so. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think that this is the first time that we've asked this question where I find it impossible to answer because it is so ahead of its time. It ages perfectly, but... I think today they're a bit more accepting of indictments on themselves than they were back then. 
So if someone made a movie about the studio system and how toxic it was or about the media and how toxic it is, I think the Academy might be more willing to accept it today than they were back then. But Mm -hmm. I, I find this totally impossible to answer because without it, it's like, where are we? I think story alone, the Academy would totally hop on this movie. It's every part of the drama that they love, this introspective, sociopolitical commentary on where America is at. I I think that alone would get a lot of attention. I mean, we have movies that aren't that technically sound today that get lots of nominations. So I still think this would in that way, even if it wasn't groundbreaking or anything. But I think Wells causing so much drama is what hurt it. And if that happened today, too... I think the same thing would happen, (laughs) that it may win somewhere, but not everywhere it deserves. Yeah. Do you think there were any snubs for Citizen Kane, or are you happy with its nine? I mean, for the most part, these are the big ones. I kind of would give it another acting nom, do supporting nom for Joseph Cotton, who plays Jedediah. I feel like it could have gotten more acting nominations, apart from Orson, who is obviously the biggest role in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, it's interesting it didn't get more acting, but I do feel like these nominations are strong. I mean, we have a number of tech nominations here, so I don't really think so. I can see Joseph Cotton. I feel like the supporting categories are so strange this year, and we definitely could have made room for him. And maybe even Dorothy Cumminjore, who played Susan? Maybe. And I love Agnes Moorhead, but I feel like that would be a stretch. And then we got a few Twitter questions about this movie. The first one comes from David Metzger. If Wells had won Best Director and or Picture, would it have changed his career and reputation for the better and made the studio not interfere with the Magnificent Ambersons as much as they did? Or was his fate a foregone conclusion? (sighs) I think we could spend an entire podcast talking about this. (laughs) And like his reputation. I would love to discuss Magnificent Ambersons at some point. And dive even deeper into Citizen Kane. I love the Magnificent Ambersons. Unfortunately, I don't really think the Oscars have anything to do with this. Like, do I wish he won Best Picture and Director? I'm not going to step on my answer for later, I guess. But I don't think that changes much. I feel like he's a person who... We talk about this with people all the time. where They're almost like too cool for the Oscars. Or like they, they just operate in a completely different way that isn't accepted by their peers always they're admired by other directors but the studio system just doesn't work for them in that way and there's so much drama happening with RKO as a studio at the time and their financial status where I do I don't think it would make a difference I think they still would have interfered I mean look at what they did to Hitchcock after Rebecca won best picture like I don't I don't think it matters I haven't seen the Magnificent Ambersons but I think you would really like it yeah well, it has this, like, mystical aura about it. But again, like, that was never going to beat Mrs. Miniver. And then our other question that we got for Citizen Kane, which I thought was fun, maybe inspired by what we did with The Godfather, comes from Roy Mao. If someone were to remake Citizen Kane, I'm not saying they should, <laughs> which director would you choose? And who would you cast to play the lead roles? This is so hard. One, because it's a perfect movie. Two, Orson was mid-20s. Finding someone with that much power is so hard today. And I can only think of like big directors like Scorsese or Fincher in doing this. But 
That doesn't feel right. Who are your answers? Uh, it's hard because, I mean, everyone's going to groan when they hear me say this, but like PTA would be my answer for director because I think what he did with There Will Be Blood and capturing American capitalism and what it can do to a man definitely shows. I think that he has an interest in making that type of film and in accomplishing it at a very high level. And then casting the lead roles, I thought that Tom Burke was perfect as Orson Welles in Mank. So I would actually have him in the lead role. Well, he looks like Orson he too. He looks exactly like it him. It was a perfect fit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, him saying, Mank, it's Orson Welles is one of the funniest lines of <laughs> any movie that year. <laughs> so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give Orson Welles best director. He deserves it directors who had been making movies for decades admired this film and it has influenced so much in filmmaking as a medium so I absolutely would give it to Orson Welles he brought everything in the movie together Greg Toland would be my second answer though like if I had to pick a backup cinematography Mm -hmm. yeah mine are just flipped I'm gonna give it to Greg Toland and then Orson would be my second for director okay Yeah, I don't know. It's hard. We've raved about how great the movie is technically, but yeah, it's Orson who made all of that come together as well. So they really do go hand in hand here. Okay, our next movie is Sergeant York, the number one movie at the box office in 1941. Description here, a Tennessee farmer and marksman is drafted in World War I and struggles with his pacifist inclinations before becoming one of the most celebrated war heroes. It's directed by Howard Hawks, stars Gary Cooper, Walter Brennan, Margaret Weicherly, and Joan Leslie. It won two Oscars for actor for Cooper and then editing. It was also nominated for nine more, picture, director, supporting actor for Brennan, Supporting Actress for Weicherly, Original Screenplay, Cinematography Black and White, Art Direction Black and White, Sound Recording, and Music Scoring of a Dramatic Picture. What are your thoughts on Sergeant York? Woof. (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking about Gary Cooper? (laughs) Okay, I'll talk about the movie before I talk about Gary Cooper, but the movie itself... It absolutely makes sense, I think, why this was the number one movie at the box office of 1941. It is a movie about a real-life war hero, and it's a very wholesome story. The way that it begins, I found to be way too slow for my liking, and I love slow movies, but this just, this opening dragged, and it made it hard for me to get invested, but you know, you have this everyman. He's from Tennessee and he is a pacifist. And then you pivot to have the second part of the film be about him in World War I. So if you're thinking about the types of movies that audiences liked at the time and people that they connected with, like this film and Gary Cooper, absolutely. It makes sense. It is not the type of film that I like, but I do think that once he joins the military, it actually did start picking up for me. Um, And I was a bit more interested to see where this film was going. Sergeant Alvin York was a real person, and they had tried to get this film adapted for a very long time. They wanted to make this biopic, but 
the real Sergeant York himself said the only way that he would allow them to do it is if Gary Cooper played him, which is amazing. That's so Mm. funny. I don't connect with Gary Cooper as an actor. I've talked about this before with Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and I think it can best be summed up by the fact that Montgomery Clift is my favorite actor ever, besides Daniel Day-Lewis. He's very, like, forthcoming with his emotions. He's expressive. He plays characters with a lot of emotional depth to them, which is incredibly rare, I think, for men. And Gary Cooper is the opposite of that. Every role that he takes, every performance he gives, stoicism is the law of the land. I get why he has to do that at times, but it just doesn't always work for me. I think it keeps you at a distance when a performer just doesn't show emotion. So I have a hard time connecting with him. He's a beautiful man, though. He's the 40s himbo. (laughs) You need to see Ball of Fire because he's also in that with Barbara Stanwyck. And he plays this English professor who's living in this house with all these older men, older professors. And it's just it's such a it's a delightful film. I I love it so much. Well, that tracks (laughs) another Howard Hawks film, too, the same year. And it's a better one than Sergeant York. Okay, I'll give it a watch. I feel the exact same way about Gary Cooper. He's a fine actor, but he doesn't give much. And you can't emotionally connect with him, even as he's playing this incredible war hero. And I feel like especially with those types of roles, especially when you're looking back at World War I and World War II is happening at this moment, I feel like it could have gone further. The story, I don't love how the movie is two parts. And the second part is a total flip. And that's like the war part, which I liked more. The beginning, you're like working up, learning about this man, how wonderful he is, where he comes from, and his mother. Who got a nomination. Yeah, it's so shocking to me. It's just a really small part. I mean, she's doing more acting there than Gary Cooper is the entire movie. But (laughs) another thing I love is that, yes, this was number one at the box office. And then Suspicion was number three at the box office. Number two was Gone with the Wind, which came out two years prior. Isn't that insane? That's crazy. It's interesting to think about like what people wanted at the movies mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, They had the trends in behavior too, just like audiences do today, for better or for worse. But I do, I get why audiences at the time liked Gary Cooper. I mean, he was a huge box office star in the 40s. And I think that is just what people wanted from their leading men. That type of masculinity during wartime, they wanted to see their their heroes who didn't cry, who were strong and sturdy and practical, like all these things that Gary Cooper is as a performer and as like a, a symbol. So it makes sense why he was cast and also why he won. Yeah. I mean, there's... No reasoning against Gary Cooper winning, but I wonder if I am just saying this or if I actually would have voted for Orson Welles. No, I mean, I think I would have voted for him too, but this was a case where like Gary Cooper was winning easily. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would respond pretty well to it still. I think the Academy still likes war films, especially when they're like big war films i mean if you think about like american sniper how many nominations that got and how well it did at the box office so if you're thinking about 
combination of box office success and well-made film. I think they would go for it still. And biopic, Gary Cooper, yeah. you're winning again in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of big names attached to this movie, including Howard Hawks and Gary Cooper. It all just reeks of Academy success. I don't know about 11 nominations. I feel like it might have fewer, but still those like big categories, picture director, acting, and the big technicals. So I don't have any snubs, do you? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I mean, it hurts to say Gary Cooper, but what else are we going to give it? I mean, that's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) It was made for him. So why not? That's my answer, too. As much as I don't connect with him as a performer, he makes the movie. It's about him. (laughs) So... Okay, moving on to our best picture winner, How Green Was My Valley. Description here, at the turn of the century in a Welsh mining village, the Morgans raise coal mining sons and hope their youngest will find a better life. This was directed by John Ford, and it stars Walter Pidgeon, Maureen O'Hara, Donald Crisp, and Sarah Allgood. It won five Oscars, picture, director for Ford, supporting actor for Crisp, cinematography black and white, and Art Direction Black and White, and it was nominated for five others, Supporting Actress for All Good, Screenplay, Sound Recording, Film Editing, and Music, Scoring of a Dramatic Picture. What did you think of How Green Was My Valley, our Best Picture winner? The only thing I'd heard about this movie before is that it was an atrocity that it beat Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. So that's how I went into this movie, and I didn't feel that way when I finished it. I actually like teared up at the end. I think I totally understand why it won. It's a movie about the working class and the strife that goes along with that. I think emotionally it does what it intends to do. I think John Ford's direction really plays into that. I was expecting like more of a Western, I guess, when you think about John Ford. And I was pleasantly surprised. Westerns are not usually my thing. <laughs> But also, it's kind of interesting how similar this is to Citizen Kane in that it's a story of a young boy who grows up and we're learning about his adolescence and how that changed and shaped his life. How did you feel about this movie? I felt very similarly. I hadn't seen it before, but everything that I knew about it, it was just that same noise. Like, why did this beat Citizen Kane? How did this beat Citizen Kane? How dare it? How could this happen? (laughs) Whenever that happens, I think we really have to actually look at the film that won. So I expected it to not necessarily not be good, but just not hold up or to like feel very dated. And I don't know why I did because it's made by Ford, who is a fantastic director. He's won four Best Director Oscars. It absolutely makes sense that this one... It has everything. Romance, family drama, morals, doom of good people. Like, (laughs) everything is right there. And it reasserts traditional family values when the U.S. was on the verge of, you know, involvement in World War II. I also think that this is so well-directed. It, like, it makes me sick (laughs) in a good way. 
Because everything that Kenneth Branagh tried to do and failed to do in Belfast, Ford does with ease here. So mm-hmm. it's this family story and it's shot through Hugh's perspective, right? We get this flashback structure, we get the voiceover, and it indicates that everything is through Hugh's point of view, but every single shot indicates something about Hugh's point of view or his relationships with the other characters in the story. All of these relationships are indicated via composition of the frame. So Morgan's power position in the family, talking about his father, Hugh's father, he's usually in the center of the frame but then you'll see really cool things happen like when the unions threaten strike he's no longer in center frame or how the production design works and how ford captures that you see these upward limits of the town all the boundaries are very clearly defined the house is bright and light at the beginning but then at the end we get these low angle shots that are much more claustrophobic that all indicate how this boy's point of view has shifted throughout this story based on what's happening with his family. I think it's it's brilliantly directed and that really caught me by surprise and it shouldn't have because I think on its surface it appears as this family story with a lot of singing <laughs> and then you really start to catch those things where you're like, oh yeah, okay, this is this is made by a master. Like this is made by a director mm-hmm. who knows how to use each shot to show Hugh's journey and how he becomes himself ultimately without his father at the end. So I thought it was really, really well directed and very emotional. So yeah, I don't think it deserves the title of bad movie that won best picture when a masterpiece was right there. Absolutely not. So this doesn't equate to Coda this past year. Absolutely not. No. One, I don't think that the power of the dog is Citizen Kane. (laughs) Like, I love the power (laughs) of the dog. Love it deeply. I think it should have won Best Picture, but I wouldn't put it on that type of pedestal. A lot of my issues with CODA come from the campaign and the, like, oh, like, vote for the good values movie. Like, vote for the movie that makes you feel good. All that. And this isn't that. This is not a feel-good movie. This is a movie that definitely makes you feel, but so does Citizen Kane in a different way. But this is this is dark. I wouldn't necessarily call this like a bright, happy story. I mean, it ends... There's death in this movie. So it connected with people in a different way than Citizen Kane did. But I don't, I don't think this is a bad Best Picture winner. No. Yeah. I think we have far worse Best Picture winners. I may revisit this i wouldn't say no to it eventually i think john ford is someone we have to talk about more at some point on the pod because i do think that this is quite a different movie for him or at least just the setting in general i also do want to say that weiler was supposed to direct this but he left to do the little foxes so i think about like a weiler version of this and Mm. i think it would still be really good this does have like a weiler image to it Mm mm-hmm Walter Pigeon also, (laughs) who's always opposite a redhead, Maureen O'Hara this time. My one thing about this movie always is that I just wish that it was in color. I feel like it would be so beautiful in color, especially given that it's called How Green Was My Valley. Like, I would like to see that color there. But I learned that Zanuck, he wanted to shoot it in color, but they abandoned that dream because they shot this movie in Malibu. And they felt that the color wouldn't match the color of whales. 
So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would receive it very well. I think it might win Best Picture again today. Yeah, I totally agree. Probably more than 10. I'm surprised that York outbeat it nomination-wise. And do you think there were any snubs? I'm surprised out of it winning five, it didn't have screenplay. And that Here Comes Mr. Jordan beat it. I don't know about that. If that was like a spreading of the wealth. Yeah, you would think it would do well in screenplay. We should talk about the actors. And we did get a question about this from Owen Daly. They said, do you think Donald and Sarah were the correct actors to nominate for How Green Was My Valley? Would you have added anyone else? You're going to hate my answer. (laughs) I don't know. I'm kind of surprised Maureen O'Hara wasn't. Yeah. I think I would have given Maureen O'Hara a nomination. And I also think Roddy McDowell gives a great performance as Hugh. We do need to talk about the child actor of it. He was really memorable to me. I really (laughs) was fully invested in everything this character was going through. I was curious, like, especially when he was, like, getting bullied and when he comes home and he's like, no, I'm going to be a man and doesn't want the people from the village going and fighting the teacher. Um, I was really curious to what you would think. So I'm kind of surprised. (laughs) No, well, I know. That's why I was like, I don't think you're going to like my answer. And sometimes, like, child acting can be tough. But it's hard. I I thought he was really good in this. As, like, the central character, you really need to find somebody who fits. And I didn't hate it. Another thing, I think we'll revisit this question when we tackle John Ford in another episode. But Brian Rowe asked... John Ford won four Best Director Oscars, but How Green Was My Valley is the only one that translated to a picture victory, too. Why do you think How Green Was My Valley managed a win in picture, while The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Quiet Man all fell short in their respective years? Looking at these other movies, we have The Informer, which lost to Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty is an MGM film. MGM ran the Oscars. And this was the highest grossing film of 1935. And it also received the most Oscar nominations at eight. So that feels right for a picture win. But it only won picture. Back then it was weird. I mean, it's still weird now, but. Yeah. And then in 1940, Rebecca beat The Grapes of Wrath. But that's a pretty strong year because we also have the Philadelphia story. We have the letter Kitty Foyle, The Great Dictator. That's a pretty big year Mm -hmm. at the Oscars. And I would never take away Rebecca's Best Picture Oscar. That year, that also was the nomination leader. It had 11 nominations. And I'm going to make a confession. And you can make the same confession. But I have never seen The Greatest Show on Earth. One day I will watch it. Today is not that day. (laughs) I haven't either. It's two and a half hours, and I hear it's not one of the best picture winners. So yeah, I mm-hmm. always put it off, even though it's like always streaming on some platform. It's always around. So for that year, I really I don't have an answer. I guess we should watch it. It does have an anniversary this year. <laughs> 70. Uh, fine, maybe. And that movie won two Oscars for picture and story, and then was nominated for three others. We can interrogate that later. But I think, too, I mean, How Green Was My Valley just feels like a Best Picture winner in comparison to Ford's other movies, I think. Yeah. 
For all the reasons that we mentioned when we discussed it. And again, it's, well, it's not a war movie, but talking about the working class and how the strike happens and the company is firing its older workers because they're getting paid more so that they can pay these new workers a cheaper wage. It's something that viewers, Academy members could and will always relate to. I think that's why it's an easy pick over Citizen Kane or any of these others. And John Ford's name attached just adds to that. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It's for John Ford. It's easy. What about you? We are in agreement (laughs) once again. John Ford. (laughs) And in a similar way to Citizen Kane, actually, I would go cinematography second. Okay. I think it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's time. What are your top three favorites from this list i would put how green was my valley at three maltese falcon at two and citizen kane at one and i would do the little foxes at three the maltese falcon at two and citizen kane at one okay so thinking about you know history legacy everything we've talked about did the academy get it right what do you think i mean i'm always gonna say no and that citizen kane should have won it should have won more period But like, I understand it. It was a totally different era. We were in the middle of a war. And I think that changed how people viewed a lot of these Best Picture nominees. And I'm not mad that How Green Was My Valley won. I just don't regard it as highly as the other two, like I just mentioned. Yeah, I don't think the Academy got it right. I think that Citizen Kane is a stronger film. It holds up better. It has left an indelible mark on film history and I don't think we can say that about How Green Was My Valley but I don't think How Green Was My Valley is a bad film or a bad best picture winner at all and I think it makes sense why Academy voters wanted to go for it that year. I would still recommend that people watch it and I think Citizen Kane is better because it didn't win. I think we talk about that all the time where Mm -hmm. like historically, sometimes it benefits you to not win best picture for your reputation, for your legacy. And I think Citizen Kane is doing just fine without that best picture Oscar. (laughs) Yeah. Saying no, the Academy didn't get it right. Doesn't mean it was like this searing, horrible decision. Right. It's not crash. Green book, other years. We've had plenty others. And then just quickly, do you have any other favorite movies from the year that weren't nominated that you would recommend? Um, Just some other notable movies. Dumbo, that one score. Um, Some other big movies. The Wolfman, High Sierra, Sullivan's Travels. I think we talked about like the biggest ones from this year are the best. What about for you? I know you mentioned Ball of Fire. Yeah, I love Ball of Fire. Barbara Stanwyck plays a character named sugar puss O'Shea which is just a perfect character name and it's just so much fun she's wonderful in it she's also perfect in the Lady Eve from this year um, which is a Preston Sturgis script and I really love this one this is like one of I have this on a criteria and I really love it Mm -hmm. so good it's Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda I also just love a movie that takes place on a cruise ship so fun yeah And then also Fantasia came out this year. I love Fantasia. And the fact that it was considered Walt Disney's worst movie, this failure was insane. Yeah, it is crazy. And it played in 1940 and 1941, which is why I'm counting it here. But 
I think Fantasia is beautiful, and I really loved it as a kid, even though it terrified me. I wanted to watch it all the time. <laughs> okay, well, that was our rewind on the 1941 Oscars. A lot of movies doing these 10 Best Picture nominee years are rough. <laughs> yeah, We really that was did a lot. find some duds and some masterpieces, so it's kind of fun in that way, though. Yeah, it was fun to discuss Citizen Kane a little bit more to talk about the Maltese Falcon, which is a classic for so many reasons. And I'm glad that I watched How Green Was My Valley. I definitely think it has a reputation that it doesn't deserve. So I hope that if you're listening to this and you like How Green Was My Valley, know that you are not alone. But also, if you haven't seen it yet because of this reason, you should definitely give it a chance Mm -hmm. and watch it. Yeah, I agree. It's a worthy like big time winner at the Oscars. And next time on Oscar Wild, we'll be talking about the biggest international Oscar winners. So each of these have won four Oscars and those are Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Fanny and Alexander and Parasite. We previously covered Parasite on our can episode last year. So we're not going to go super in depth into that. So I think it'll be interesting to see why these movies each won four Oscars and how they relate. And I love Bergman and we haven't talked about any Bergman films on this show yet. So I'm very excited to talk about Fanny and Alexander, which is one of my all time favorites, a perfect movie to me and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as well, especially since we just talked about Michelle Yeoh Mm -hmm. for everything everywhere all at once. So I'm excited to revisit all of these Mm -hmm. and talk about a great category at the Oscars. One that rarely disappoints. And if you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.